Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode eight, Conscience Without Sorrow. So we're in Bloomsbury, London, and the great tall columns of the British Museum are in front of us. Let's go in, through the entrance area, and out into the great covered courtyard. And further on, past the Egyptian exhibit on our left, and the Elgin marbles taken from Athens beyond them. Past all of that, past the Africa exhibit and the anthropology exhibit, and up a small flight of stairs, and into the South Asian exhibit. And just there, between a huge gold statue of Tara and the carvings from a stupa, it sits. It's not much to look at. It's made of a kind of greyish stone. It's a broken chunk of column, about as long as your forearm and much less tall. And there are a couple of lines of writing on it in neat but unfamiliar symbols. In fact, it's so unremarkable that a few years ago, when they removed it from the exhibit, I was worried that it was just because people weren't interested in it. And that would be a tragedy, because this is one of the most important artefacts in the history of the world. Because its letters spell out pretty nearly the first bits of writing from ancient India. And what writing it is, it's the writing, the words of the emperor of India from the 3rd century BC, written down nearly verbatim, and he's talking to his people. The script is Ashokan Brahmi, and it's already complex. It's clearly the result of a, a long tradition of writing and scholarship that's entirely lost to us. So it's a valuable piece just because of its historical precedent. But what he says, what the emperor says, is astonishing. It's quite unlike the words of any ruler before or since. Fortunately, the fragment is uh, back on display in the British Museum, and indeed the director of the British Museum has worked with the BBC to produce a, a small podcast about it, part of their The World in 100 Objects series, and that's well worth checking out. But today, we're going to start the first of three podcasts looking at the emperor who spoke those words. His name was Ashoka. And in this episode, we look at his birth and his youth and his struggle to come to power. We take a bit of a sidetrack and look at his family. And then we look at the events that entirely changed the course of his life. An experience which transformed him from a, a fairly ordinary or perhaps slightly bloodthirsty king into an emperor who's set and devoted to doing what's right by his people. So much so that he truly deserves his epithet, Ashoka the Great. Okay, let's start with a quick recap. So in 321 BC, Chandragupta Maurya started to build the Mauryan Empire. And after a long and pretty successful reign, he handed the empire over to his son Bindusara. That's about 297 BC or so. We heard about all of that in previous podcasts. Well, Bindusara's eye was caught by a young Brahmin woman from Champa. Champa's in the kind of heartlands uh, of the Mauryan Empire. And both Bindusara and this young woman followed the Ajivika sect. The Ajivikas are the third of the three great sects that arose at the 6th century or just before, Jainism, Buddhism and Ajivikism. And Ajivikism died out 
Um, its holy texts are entirely lost. We've got none of them left. It has no followers. In fact, we only know of its existence through the texts of the other two sects. And you can assume that these other sects aren't going to give the most detailed or maybe even the most charitable account of their rival sect. More of this in a special episode of the podcast coming soon. Anyway, uh, Bindusara, uh, his, his eye was caught by this young Brahmin woman whose name was Subhadrangi, and he soon uh, added her to his list of wives. But she was kept away from the palace for some reason, away from her new husband, and I'm entirely unable to find any sort of reason why. But she was kept away, uh, and after a long period of time, the, the waiting ended, and she was allowed to come to the to the palace to see her husband. Whatever palace intrigue was going on was over. And it must have been a very happy reunion because she was very soon pregnant with the emperor's child. The story goes that whilst she was pregnant, she had some weird cravings to do impossible things. At first, she wanted to jump up and stamp on the moon and the sun. Ill-advised and impossible. Then she wanted to play with the stars. Uh, And then she wanted to cut down all of the forests. Presumably not being able to satisfy any of these desires, she nevertheless made it through the pregnancy and gave birth to a son. And she was so delighted that she was back with her husband, that the isolation from him was over, that she called the son Ashoka, which means something like without sorrow. And hence the title of this episode is really The Conscience of Ashoka. Clever, isn't it? In fact, all three of the Ashoka podcasts we're going to do are going to be using the same format name. Anyway, actually, um, she had another baby with the emperor called Vitashoka, which means sorrow terminated. So she's really, really happy to be back with her husband. Now, the young Ashoka wasn't an especially powerful person young in his life. Uh, He wasn't a very prominent person in the court of Bindusara. He wasn't the son of the chief queen. He wasn't the eldest son. He wasn't the crown prince, the presumptive heir. The crown prince and presumptive heir, and in fact the eldest son, was called Sasima. And and Ashoka wouldn't really have expected to gain power while Sasima was around. Nevertheless, according to the legends, Ashoka was already causing waves in the court. The Ajivika sages, uh, who the emperor and the queen followed, um, started paying attention to him. And an Ajivika saint pronounced that he was the most able son. Uh, and an Ajivika fortune teller proclaimed that he would be king. Strangely, the legends also say that the emperor didn't like his son Ashoka very much because he thought Ashoka was a little bit ungainly, a little bit awkward, which seems harsh. Anyway, Ashoka grew up as just another princeling in the emperor's court. Obindusara continued the tradition of handing out viceroyships to his sons. Way back in the first podcast, we heard about this. Giving a, a viceroyship to your, to your princes has been the standard move for kings all the way back to the 6th century BC and before. But viceroys are now especially important in this really huge Mauryan Empire, simply because it's so huge. It's so big that the fringe provinces can't be effectively micromanaged from the capital, from Pataliputra. Communications aren't fast enough. And there were two viceroyships of a special importance in Mindasara's day. There's Taxila in northwest India. That's the seat which controlled the Punjab and, and much more besides. It's the, also the great seat of ancient Indian learning and the great gateway to the, the Greek world beyond. Tremendously important place. 
And there's also Ujjain, which is another viceroyship. And that's in central India, a fair way south of modern Delhi. Uh, and that controlled just a huge area, Malwa, Gujarat in the west, and a lot more else besides. So those are the important viceroyships. And pretty much every prince in this podcast who's got a mention at all has been a viceroy at some point. And Ashoka is going to be no exception. So Taxila was revolting, and I don't mean it smelt bad. It had been an independent state only relatively recently, and it was starting to chafe under imperial control now that it was in the empire. So Bindasara sent a son, and the son he had available was Ashoka. Ashoka goes off to Taxila, and this revolt's kind of fermenting there. But Ashoka did very well. He sorted out the revolt, and he kept the populace happy. In fact, according to some stories, Ashoka was able to sort out the revolt without fighting at all, just talking the rebels down. But who knows? In any case, Taxila, as I said, is a hugely important place. So this is a really big success for Ashoka. He's proven his ability. Now he's in the emperor's good books. And so he's given the other important viceroyship, Ujjain. Ashoka's kind of more prominent now, but he's still not the number one prince. His older brother, Sasima, is still ahead of him in the pecking order, still the crown prince. But Ashoka's taken an important step in power, and he's poised to take even more. Susima, by some accounts, was a rather nasty piece of work. One day, the story goes, he was strolling home when he came across the Prime Minister. And just for a laugh, the Crown Prince slapped the Prime Minister on the head. Well, that's kind of a bad move. Prime Minister's this kind of stuffy, um, respectful type, and he's ticked off. And maybe he's a little bit scared that the future king uh, would act without any restraint or respect uh, with him now, so when, when the future king becomes the, the actual king, he's going to keep on disrespecting the, the advisors. So the Prime Minister starts gossiping about Sasima to his colleagues, and pretty soon Sasima's got a bad name, he's unpopular with the ministers. But the Emperor still preferred Sasima, and prepared him for power by giving him all sorts of responsibilities. So that when the Taxilans started to revolt again, some years later, towards the end of Bindasara's reign, the emperor sent his favoured son, Sasima. I guess the thought is, they were revolting again. Ashoka can't have done all that good a job, I suppose. Uh, so let's send Shasima to, to go and do a better job. So Shasima's up in uh, Taxila. Ashoka's down in Ujjain. And Ashoka's uh, there for perhaps as many as, as ten years, busying himself with the affairs of being a governor and family life. But then, in 267 BC, Bindusara became seriously ill. The crown prince is still miles away in Taxila. And the emperor, seeing his death coming, sends a message and says, Come back quickly to the capital. I need to crown you before I die. And the emperor also sends a message to Ashoka, saying, Your, your brother's going to... Come back, come back and, uh, and become crowned. You need to go out and sort out Taxila. So go off to Taxila. I suppose the thought is, you know, let's get Ashoka out of the way, as far away from the capital as we can, so that the crown pinks, quince can take power unopposed. But when Ashoka got the message, he didn't set out for Taxila. He went in completely the opposite direction towards Pataliputra. And he got there before his older brother. He was closer. And 
Instead of attending to his dying father, he started to make overtures to the ministers of the empire. And the ministers, probably eager to make sure that this disrespectful Sassima doesn't take power, soon get behind Ashoka. Well, it's unclear what happens here, but at least by the time the crown prince Sassima arrives in the capital, the old emperor is dead and Ashoka's in power. And Ashoka has his older brother, the true heir to the throne, murdered right there at the gates of the city. In fact, the story goes that Ashoka had a mechanical elephant built at the east gate of Pataliputra. And he built a model of himself to go on top of the elephant. So we've got this kind of um, Ashoka on his elephant model outside the eastern gate. And round that, Ashoka had a ditch dug. And he, he had uh, hot coals, put, burning hot coals, put into that ditch. And then he disguised the ditches. He covered them over with straw and then put dirt on top of the straw. Well, when Sosima comes racing up to the capital to sort it out, he hears that Ashoka's taken power. And he sees Ashoka, or what he thinks is Ashoka, on top of the elephant by the gate. And he charges towards him. And the ground falls away, the ground gives way, and he falls into this pit of coals and he's burnt alive. And that brings a new meaning to the term elephant trap. That's a chess joke for you chess enthusiasts. Anyway, to cut a tall tale short, Ashoka was a ruthless, brother-murdering princeling. In fact, some stories say that he murdered 101 of his brothers. That seems a bit much. He saved at least some of their lives because they're going to appear later in the story. And in particular, he saves uh, his youngest brother, Tisa, who's going to appear uh, as an important character. But after four years of bloody purges of killing his relatives... Ashoka finally felt secure enough to crown himself the emperor. So Ashoka, having waited so long, decides to throw a huge party to mark his coronation. According to the Buddhist texts, the gods themselves brought gifts. Perfect mangoes and a sort of organic toothbrush to clean yourself up with afterwards. The, the toothbrush is just a, a fibrous stick you can use to clean your teeth. Not too dissimilar to the sort of thing you can readily get in India today. Not only the gods, the spirits of the air were there too, and they brought napkins and drink. And, and parrots were there, they brought rice. And mice came to clean up the rice, uh, and it was cooked for a great feast. And it sounds fantastic, sounds like a hell of a party. It's all beautifully well-coordinated, and much better than the usual thing we get of all your guests bringing a bottle of wine. So Ashoka ascended the throne. He was 34 years old, and he started to call himself... Devanampia Piyadasi Raja, which means something roughly like kind-hearted and God-loved king. The Devanampia is just a, a title that all Mauryan emperors used. And the second bit, the, the Piyadasi, that's Ashoka's distinctive royal name. And it means something like disposed to look on things with kindness. Actually, Ashoka had another name. Not one he chose himself. It was a nickname and it was Chandashoka, which means Ashoka the Cruel. And he's called that because he's supposed to have been really, really cruel. He's supposed to have put to death his harem for insinuating that he was ugly. Apparently he burnt all 500 of them alive himself personally. And then, presumably a bit tired of doing his own dirty work, he's said to have designed a torture chamber filled with machines to inflict slow and painful death. 
that was called Ashoka's Hell. And it ground up the bodies of impertinent officials, monks, and all sorts of other people who didn't really deserve it. Or at least, that's what the Buddhist stories say. And they might well be a bit biased, because Ashoka in later life became a devout Buddhist, and by making Ashoka, before he became a Buddhist, uh, really evil, the Buddhists make that conversion process look better. As the historian Mukherjee puts it, they make the younger Ashoka cruel to glorify the religion that could transmute base metal to gold. Nicely put. In fact, there's no good evidence that Ashoka was cruel um, in this way, in his early reign. He clearly didn't murder most of his brothers, since as soon as he was emperor, he places a good many of them as viceroys in his empire. And he looks after his family well. He supports them with servants and ministers. What's more, Ashoka himself says that as soon as he became emperor, he started to pardon prisoners on a regular basis, which, uh, you know, perhaps every year. So Ashoka, even early on in his reign, is someone who looks after his family and is generous to those who've done wrong to him. And all that's a long way away from a sort of maniacal, demonic, torturing machine that he's supposed to have been. Okay, I'm going to stop here and indulge in a bit of uh, palace gossip. And in particular, I'm going to gossip about Ashoka's love life. Five of Ashoka's partners aren't known to us, and each of them has their own character and their own story. Back before he was emperor, when he was a lowly viceroy in Ujjain, Ashoka had fallen for his first love. Her name was Devi, and she was the daughter of a merchant, perhaps not the kind of upmarket classy girl a young prince really ought to have been stepping out with. But step out they did, and they had several children together. Now, Devi was a devout Buddhist, and it's said that she was part of the Buddha's own tribe, the Shakyas, and that her family had fled the massacre of the Shakyas by the king of Kasala, which we talked about in a previous episode. In any case, she was certainly heavily involved in that buzzing Buddhist community uh, in Ajayan, uh, involved in the constant flow of arguments and new ideas. And she may have even been the person leading the work to build Buddhist monuments at Sanchi, which are still there. One of their sons became a very well-travelled monk, someone important the world over, even today, and we'll hear plenty about that in later podcasts. Uh, and in fact, one of their daughters became a great Buddhist queen in foreign lands. But, so for a number of years, about ten years, Ashoka and Devi live in, in a sort of marital bliss, but it's not going to last. When Ashoka uh, leaves to, to go to Pataliputra to try his hand at becoming emperor, Devi stays back in Ujjain, uh, and it seems that she never followed him. She stays there. Perhaps she's too enmeshed in the Buddhist community down there. In truth, uh, Ashoka and Devi were perhaps never even formally married. Uh, Devi might have been of too low a social rank to count as a, a proper queen. So that's Devi, Ashoka's young love. Once he was emperor, Ashoka found other wives. And his favourite, his chief queen, was Asandimata. She was the chief queen right up until her death. And she and Ashoka actually had no children. We don't get much of a description of her, but she seems to have been a strong and compassionate woman. Remember Ashoka's elder brother, former crown prince Asima, the one he stole the throne from. 
Well, after Ashoka had him murdered, his pregnant wife fled the city. She ran through the East Gate, past that, uh, that, that mechanical elephant with that model of Ashoka on top, past that and out on into the countryside. And she carries on running, fleeing Ashoka, until she finds a village. And it's a village of Chandalas, outcasts or untouchables, if you like. This is a place no one's going to look for her. So she goes into the village and she says, I'm going to stay here. And she looks around to find a hut to have her baby in. Well, the chief of the Chandala village was a good man. And he took her in and he looked after her. He treated her with the honour and dignity due to a wife. The boy, the son, was born and raised in that village in utmost secrecy. When he grew up, he became a monk. And he must have been a pretty fearless chap. Because when he was old enough, he left the village to go and confront his uncle, now Emperor Ashoka, the man who had murdered his father and made his mother flee in fear. And when he went to, so he went to Pataliputra, and when he went there, he found that Ashoka was an entirely different sort of man than the one who had done those terrible things to his father. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Anyway, the point is this. It was Queen Asandimata who welcomed back Ashoka's nephew, the son of the brother uh, that Ashoka had murdered. And she welcomed him back with open arms and got him in to see the king. You get the impression that she was a very supportive wife, she, that she bought into Ashoka's new way of looking at the world. Um, but we're getting ahead of ourselves again. Asandimata died before Ashoka, actually, after they had reigned 29 years together. The next queen, the second queen in the pecking order, was Karuvaki. She's unique in being a queen whose words we hear today. Because towards the end of Ashoka's reign, she left some writings carved on a pillar, much like the pillar at the British Museum I mentioned at the beginning. And this is what she wrote on the pillar. On the order of the beloved of the gods, i.e. Ashoka, the officers everywhere are to be instructed that whatever may be the gift of the second queen, whether a mango grove, or a monastery, an institution for dispensing charity, or any other kind of donation, it is to be counted to the credit of that queen, the second queen, the mother of Tivala, Karuvaki. That's the inscription. I don't really know what to make of it. On the one hand, you can say that she's clearly giving lots of stuff to charity, even things as big as monasteries and mango groves. So she's got some sort of power and wealth, a little bit independent of her husband, and that's cool. On the other hand, she seems keener on gaining credit for her good works than anything else, and that's not so cool. Anyway, you can still go and visit the pillar in Allahabad, um, although I have to admit I couldn't find it. It's somewhere in the fort there. You might need permission. I got lost in an underground Hindu temple and had to leave before I ever saw it, which was a bummer. Another queen was Padmavati, and actually we know little about her, but in a revealing way. In fact, we wouldn't even know her name, except for the fact that she was the mother of Ashoka's favoured crown prince, the heir apparent Kunala. And that's informative because it tells us two things. First, that Ashoka may have had a bunch of other wives that we've never heard of because they didn't give birth to anyone famous. And second, the crown prince wasn't always the oldest son. Nor was he always the son of the chief queen. He was just the favoured son, the one who was the apple of his father's eye. Ashoka's final queen was Tisaraka. 
At the death of his, his chief queen, the queen we mentioned first, Ashoka was distraught for a few years. But after about four years, he seems to have married this Tissakura, a much younger and more foolish person. In fact, she's presented in the text as a headstrong and wicked woman, someone who leads Ashoka into trouble. According to one story, after Ashoka became a Buddhist, Tissaraka became annoyed at this. Right? Buddhism was always distracting him. Right? She wanted more attention. So in revenge, she decided to kill the Bodhi tree, which is the tree that the Buddha was sitting under when he became enlightened. So she used a thorn and, and she tried to kill the Bodhi tree, this, this place of pilgrimage, this holy tree. But Ashoka prayed and the tree was rejuvenated. And then Ashoka built a stone wall around the tree to protect it. This story is recorded on that great monument of ancient Indian Buddhism, the stupas at Sanchi. It, it's carved into a railing there. Um, by the way, the image from the website banner uh, if you go to uh, historyofindiapodcast.com, the image at the top is, is a carving from Sanchi. That's the sort of thing it is. Sanchi looks absolutely incredible. It looks like there's so much there. It's number one on my want to visit places. Haven't got round to it yet. Hopefully next year. If you get a chance, just go. It's kind of neat, though, that we have an illustration of Ashoka's wife. OK, enough gossip about Ashoka's private life, let's get back to the main story. So Ashoka's been emperor for several years, eight years in fact. Isn't it nice to be able to put some concrete dates on things at last? So after eight years, Ashoka decides to invade the Kalingas. The Kalingas were a large region on the east coast of India, the province to the south of modern-day Bengal. And the Kalingas were extremely densely populated. Some centuries later, a traveller from China said this about them. In the old days, the kingdom of Kalinga had a very dense population. Their shoulders rubbed one with the other, and the axles of their chariot wheels grated together. And when they raised their arm sleeves, a perfect tent was formed. That's pretty densely populated. It seems a little bit much, but the evidence does indicate that Kalinga was uh, pretty, pretty full of people. In fact, writing in the time of Ashoka's grandfather, the Greek Megasthenes claims that they had an army of 60,000 infantry, 1,000 cavalry and 700 elephants. And in the two generations since, they'd only grown in power. So this is a really populous, really powerful area. And Ashoka wants to invade. But he's not got any good reason to invade. They posed actually no serious threat to something as large as the Mauryan Empire. And there's no stories of them insulting him or anything. But the province was strategically important. For one thing, it controlled the sea traffic along the east coast between two major rivers. But for another, it also controlled um, access, easy access across land to South India along the major river valleys. Anyway, Ashoka in his eighth year invades the Kalingas and he orders his troops to have no mercy. The Kalingas were soundly thrashed by Ashoka's much larger army. In fact, according to Ashoka's own account, the Kalingas were not only beaten, they were massacred. 150,000 people were deported. 100,000 were killed in battle. And many times that number perished. Everyone in Kalinga was either killed or had a close loved one who was killed. Well, this was Ashoka's first uh, seeing of the results of a conquest 
and he was profoundly and unalterably changed by it. To him, each of those people was no longer just like numbers in a news report. They were real people whose bodies uh, lay there, people who had respected their parents, who had loved their children. Each death was to him a tragedy, as he saw it. Actually, let's hear it in Ashoka's own words, because we have them. He speaks about himself in the third person, but that's okay. He's an emperor. When he had been consecrated eight years, the beloved of the gods, the king Piedasi, conquered Kalinga. And 150,000 people were deported, 100,000 were killed, and many times that number perished. Afterwards, now that Kalinga was annexed, the beloved of the gods very earnestly practised Dharma, desired Dharma, and taught Dharma. On conquering Kalinga, the beloved of the gods felt remorse, for when an independent country is conquered, the slaughter, death and deportation of the people is extremely grievous to the beloved of the gods, and weighs heavily on his mind. What is even more deplorable to the beloved of the gods is that those who dwell there, whether Brahmins, Ramans, or those of other sects, or householders who show obedience to their superiors, obedience to mother and father, obedience to their teachers and behave well and devotedly towards their friends, acquaintances, colleagues, relatives, slaves and servants. All these people suffer violence, murder and separation from their loved ones. Even those who are fortunate enough to have escaped and whose love is undiminished by the brutalising effect of war suffer from the misfortunes of their friends, acquaintances, colleagues and relatives. This participation of all men in suffering weighs heavily on the mind of the beloved of the gods. Except among the Greeks, there is no land where the religious orders of the Brahmins and the Sramanas are not to be found, and there is no land anywhere where men do not support one sect or another. Today, if a hundredth or a thousandth part of those people who were killed or died or were deported when Kalinga was annexed were to suffer similarly, it would weigh heavily on the mind of the beloved of the gods. So on the bloody fields of Kalinga, Ashoka experienced a sudden and dramatic conversion to Buddhism. And with his conversion to Buddhism came a transformation in his character. From a man hungry for the suffering of other humans, he turned into someone who refused to eat meat. He turned from cruelty to kindness. He turned from aggression to profound non-violence and never conquered again. In fact, he soon became a Buddhist monk himself the first and the greatest of the monk kings. Or, that's what the standard story says. The story gets some things right. Ashoka clearly thought of Kalinga as a turning point uh, in his own life and his outlook on life. And it's also true that Ashoka never conquered again. And it's also true that Ashoka was a Buddhist. But the classic story gets quite a lot wrong. Sure, Ashoka was a, a Buddhist, but he never became a monk. He was always just a lay follower. And he only became a devout Buddhist later on in life, after a pretty hesitant start. That Dhamma, that thing from the inscription I read, uh, it, it's natural to interpret that as a Buddhist concept, the idea of the Buddha's teaching. But in fact, it's not the Buddhist concept he's referring to. It's not any religious concept at all. More on Dharma next week.
And then there's the very embarrassing fact that the conquest of Kalinga isn't mentioned by even a single ancient Buddhist source, as far as I can tell. And that's just implausible if this is supposed to be the great moment of Ashoka's conversion to Buddhism. So the classic story of a conversion to Buddhism on the fields of Kalinga has to be wrong. There are some other theories around. According to some historians, looking at you Mukherjee, Ashoka was already a Buddhist before Kalinga, albeit not a very good one, someone happy to massacre people for a bit of conquering. This suffers from some of the same problems as the classic conversion theory, and it seems to get the dates of the inscriptions of Ashoka wrong. According to other historians, the great Ramila Tapa, Ashoka gradually became a Buddhist. Uh, his conversion was, was gradual, and in retrospect, he made Kalinga the turning point. He looked back on his life and thought, that's when things started to change for me. He, he wrote a myth about himself. And according to this story, he stopped conquering after Kalinga, not because he had had this transformational experience, not because his life had genuinely changed at Kalinga, but rather just because there was no strategic need to. The, the remaining kingdoms of South India were too weak to seriously be a threat to uh, the empire. Hmm. If, if I can indulge in a bit of historical speculation myself, this strikes me as not quite right. It uh, makes the uncomfortable assumption that emperors won't attack people simply be uh, because those people are weak, and that just seems wrong. If you've got a weak neighbour and you're an ambitious emperor, why not go ahead and get some more land? Moreover, it seems like the point of attacking Kalinga was to get military access to South India. So I think that the likeliest explanation is that at Kalinga, Ashoka did have a conversion, an entirely sincere transformation of his character. He looked at those bodies and things changed for him and they couldn't be changed back. So there was a conversion, but not to Buddhism. In fact, we should do away with the whole idea of converting to Buddhism as an event, a distinct moment in this period. Look, if you convert to Judaism, you've got to have a sponsor and you've got to undergo a number of public rituals, uh, possibly even circumcision. Right? Or if you convert to Islam, well, that's easier, but it, it's similarly clear cut. It's a clear event. You utter a certain phrase announcing your faith in God and in Muhammad as his messenger. But there's nothing at all like that for early Buddhism. And plausibly, we should get out of the habit of thinking of Buddhism as a separate religion from Hinduism in this time at all. Uh, in anything like the same sense that Islam and Judaism are separate religions. Following the Vedic rites and being a Buddhist was in no way contradictory, and Ashoka explicitly did both. So, very, very roughly, maybe becoming a Buddhist uh, is more like stopping reading Dostoevsky and starting to read Tolstoy. Right? You, you go there for answers, maybe you're a bit unsatisfied with the answer you've been getting from your old source. And the framework in which you view life slowly, maybe imperceptibly changes. But your focus is on your answer and the answers that you're getting, not on your status as a member of this religion or that religion, a member of uh, the fans of this Russian writer or that. So maybe Ashoka was not converted to Buddhism in a sudden flash at the Kalingas. Um, Tapa is surely right about this, but there seems to have been something dramatic, some pull of his conscience there.
we can still believe that Ashoka is sincere when he says himself that Kalinga was the turning point. Because at Kalinga, Ashoka uh, resolved to take his conscience seriously, to find out what was right and pursue it no matter the cost to his ambitions and his pleasures. And that definite resolution would have quickly led to him deciding that he couldn't make any further conquests, simply because such conquests kill innocents and they're just wrong. And he found answers, he looked for answers, and he looked for them uh, increasingly as time went on in Buddhism. Anyway, enough historical explanation. Whatever happened at Kalinga, there would be no further conquest. The Mauryan Empire had reached its zenith. There would be no further expansion, no conquest, no war, no huge bloodshed. Every week we read a bit from the primary sources, and today is a tremendously exciting week for me because, for the very first time, we can read something from the actual people we're talking about. Up until now, we've been reading stuff which has been written centuries after uh, the time that we're interested in. But now we get to read Ashoka's own words. You've already heard quite a few quotes from Ashoka, but it's glorious stuff, and I'm going to give you just a little bit more, if you'll humour me. So we, we heard a long extract of Ashoka talking about his experiences in Kalinga and how that transformed him, of expressing his remorse. Well, in that same edict, on that same pillar, Ashoka goes on to boast, but it's a very peculiar kind of boast. It's not the boast you usually hear from emperors. Here's what he says. The beloved of the gods believes that one who does wrong should be forgiven, as far as it is possible to forgive. And the beloved of the gods conciliates the forest tribes of his empire, but he warns them that he has power even in his remorse, and he asks them to repent, lest they be killed. For the beloved of the gods wishes that all beings should be unharmed, should be self-controlled, calm in mind and gentle. The beloved of the gods considers victory by dharma, that's victory by virtue, to be the foremost victory. And moreover, the beloved of the gods has gained this victory on all his frontiers to a distance of about 1500 miles. And then he goes on to talk about the surrounding countries, the surrounding lands where his victory by virtue has won. He talks about the Greeks, about Antiochus, and the lands beyond Antiochus, uh, the, the kings Ptolemy, Antigone, uh, Antigonus, Magus and Alexander. And he talks about his victory of Dharma spreading down to South India, to the Cholas, the, to the Pandyas, and uh, as far as Sri Lanka. And he talks about with the tribes within his empire and how uh, they are also following his, his instructions on virtue. He says, everywhere the people follow the beloved of the gods' instructions in Dharma. Even where the envoys of the beloved of the gods have not gone, people hear of his conduct according to Dharma, his precepts and his instructions in Dharma, and they follow Dharma and will continue to follow it. What is obtained by this is victory everywhere, and everywhere victory is pleasant. This pleasure has been obtained through victory by Dharma, Yet it is but a slight pleasure, for the beloved of the gods only looks upon that as important in its results which pertain to the next world. This inscription of Dharma has been engraved, so that any sons or great-grandsons that I may have 
should not think of gaining new conquest, and in whatever victories they may gain, should be satisfied with patience and light punishment. They should only consider conquest by Dharma to be a true conquest, and delight in Dharma should be their whole delight, for this is of value in both this world and the next. Great. Thank you very much for listening. Apologies uh, for having a slight cold and having a slight uh, nasal tone. Next episode, we're going to be continuing with our second of three podcasts on Ashoka. We're going to be looking at what happened after this conversion experience in Kalinga. The podcast is available on iTunes and uh, historyofindiapodcast.com, all one word. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snehal Sidhu Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. Thanks. Take care.